1: This is JR Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is part of Pathwise. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Yolanda Taylor, to whom I was just introduced by our mutual friend and Pathwise team member, Jennifer Vellis. Yolanda is an investment professional, a small business owner, an author, and a passionate nonprofit supporter. Her investment career includes time with Fidelity Investments, Copper Rock Capital, Prio Wealth, and most recently, Putnam Investments. As a small business owner, she has co-owned a power yoga studio in Lexington, Massachusetts for the past 10 years. Her nonprofit work centers on children and women, including board roles over the years with Hope and Comfort, Cradles to Crayons, Compass for Kids, Parenting Resources Associates, and the Center for Women in Enterprise. And her 2009 book, Take Me Back to Redway, covers her life growing up in poverty with her father in Northern California. Uh, ultimately before going on to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, where she earned her bachelor's degree, and Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, where she earned an MBA. Yolanda lives in Lexington, Massachusetts, has four children, and I am delighted to welcome her today. All right. So usually I start off by asking guests about their first job. I find that question to be kind of instructive about, you know, what people did when they were growing up. But I know you had a really different childhood, a very difficult childhood, as you wrote about in your book. Let's start there. Can you share a little bit about it and how it's shaped you as an adult?
2: Sure. So I wrote a book, Take Me Back to Redway, which told the story It's actually a back and forth story between my childhood and my present life. And present was at the time when I had just given birth to our fourth child in four years and taken a break from my career. So it was the back and forth story, basically with the underlying theme of how do you instill in children the values of hard work and determination that came so naturally to me as a child given the circumstances that we lived in, which I'll describe in one second, sort of against my present life. And my present life was raising four young kids in essentially an upper-class household, Mm -hmm. where I think that innate desire to want to go out on your own and make money and be independent might not come as naturally. So quick story, my father was a reporter for the Associated Press and was assigned to cover the Vietnam War. So that's where I was born. I had a sister, my sister died at one year old. And it, that coupled with the turmoil of the war and everything that was going on, basically sent my mother into a depression. And my father learned one day that while he was off, you know, oftentimes like 15, 18 hours a day while he was off at work. I was being locked in a closet all day by myself. Mm -hmm. He panicked and we left Vietnam and settled on the land in Northern California of all places. So he had a couple of friends who had moved to that area from the war as well. We lived in Redway, California, or actually Garberville, California, but Redway is the, the town that most people have heard of. And we spent four years living on the land of friends of his in a lean-to that he built. And then we spent four years living in a packing crate. So one of those, you know, things that are attached to the back of a train that carried goods, um, it become dislodged from the train and was vacant on the side of the road. And as hard as it might sound basically living eight years of your life um, on welfare, mostly outside. I had a well-educated, loving single parent who was no longer working and devoted basically everything to my well-being and doing the best job he could as a parent. And I think one of the main things was just saying, you know, I believe in you. You can do anything you put your mind to, and that message just was sort of instilled in me from day one. And the whole concepts of hard work and determination, just those were my trademarks from a pretty early age.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that experience, I can't even begin to imagine, but I'm sure it, it gave you a form of resilience that most people will never have to find.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And Definitely gave me a lot of perspective on parenting, that's for sure, as well. Yeah.
1: Well, it sounds like your father basically sacrificed a good chunk of his own life, you know, he in, did. in he did. devoting his time and attention to you.
2: Exactly, exactly. Yes. Yeah, sadly, it was a bit of a trade-off work, and as a journalist, you don't make a lot of money, so most right. of his income would go towards childcare or not work, go on welfare, and, Take care of me, and he he chose the latter.
1: So, how old were you during that eight year period?
2: So, I was age two to 10. You know, I so most likely I didn't remember, I don't remember, actively remember the first couple of years of it, but Hmm. slowly I became aware that our situation was a little different. And we ended up leaving California when I was 10, and he decided, okay, I got to get back in the workforce. And the job he got was in Hong Kong, writing for the, as a editor for the South China Morning Post. We leave, you know, the land of Hickville, California, and move to what was then the most densely populated city in the world, Causeway yeah. Bay, Causeway Bay, Hong Kong, quite different.
1: Yeah.
2: And I, and I enroll in a British school, full uniform, Ruler on your fingers if you did something wrong, really, really strict.
1: That must have been a crazy transition for you going <laughs> yeah. from, you know, basically being homeschooled back in the day, right? Right.
2: Yeah. Well, it was definitely a crazy transition. But I mean, I guess I didn't appreciate it at the time, but just the perspective on what different lifestyles can be like or different areas can be like. I mean, I think I. I learned a lot. It was interesting, too, in Hong Kong because the school system was so intense and so intense primarily in math and science that when I came back to the United States as a fourth grader, I was so far ahead in math and science. It took a couple of years before I was learning anything new, but I was so far behind in history and English. You know, it it all worked out in the end, but there was a lot of balancing factors going on.
1: So where did you live after that?
2: And then after that, so we we lived two years in Hong Kong. My dad met and married a Filipino woman who became my stepmother. And then one of his parents got very ill and he had grown up in upstate New York Okay. So we left Hong Kong and whenever anyone asks, where are you from? I always say upstate New York. I don't, I don't go into the details of the earlier years. Yeah. So we moved to upstate New York, you know, now my stepmother, and then she had a child, my half brother, and basically moved in with my grandparents and helped take care of them. And then I would say my life became fairly normal, except for the fact that my abandoned real mother found us Mm. and got a kind of big shot legal team. I was on the cover of the New York times, got a big legal team to find us long, you know, Vietnamese woman finds her daughter after 10 years of searching the world in upstate New York. And I spend essentially fifth grade in family court. And long story short, she lost full custody. Um, she didn't really speak English. She didn't speak English at all. And she was working multiple waitressing jobs um, in New York City. And you know, I was a happy, pretty well settled kid now with a with a stepmother and a little brother as well. So she got every weekend visitation rates, turned them down, and I've never seen her again.
1: Wow. So at that point obviously all this stripe in your first 12 years or so things settled in a little bit more to exactly middle school junior high years and into high school exactly yeah. yeah very normal i was
2: a runner we we ended up being like a really good running team and that ended up sort of charting a lot of i guess my path into college i would say anyway yeah. Went to the University of Pennsylvania and Wharton School of Business, ran track and cross country and no one, no one in college even knew about my younger years.
1: Yeah. Wow.
2: So I was recruited, a recruited runner and quite frankly, Penn and Cornell were the top two schools that were interested in having me run for them. Okay. And I didn't know anything about the Wharton School of Business. But when I got to Penn, I was like, hey, this seems kind of cool. They've got this really good business school. And I really liked the campus much more so than the rural Cornell type of campus. Right. And at the time, the advice of the coach was, I'm not sure you have the grades to get into Wharton, but why don't you apply to the liberal arts program? You can run here. And then... If you do really well, you can apply at the end of your freshman year. So I did well my freshman year and I applied to into Wharton. And they have a a dual degree program. So I have a BA from Penn and Economics. And then I have a BS from the Wharton
1: School in marketing. And when did you start to develop a sense of what you wanted to do professionally?
2: I kind of fell into what I ended up doing professionally. So there was two things. One is my father was a writer. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by his work. So when we moved back to upstate New York, he became a columnist for a paper, which essentially meant he could meant he could write about whatever he wanted to so right. he was what I would call like an investigative journalist like he'd okay. go after you know the person who was wrongly imprisoned and do all sorts of interviews and publish tons of articles. And then, you know, the courts would rehear the case. And I thought that was so interesting. Hmm. And he said to me, don't go into writing, doesn't pay any money. You're going to live the same life that I led and that you led as a kid. And as a kid, I was definitely very increasingly aware of our, you know, that we were, we didn't have money and had this burning desire to do better financially So I got to Penn, I loved economics, and decided that I wanted to go into econ in some way. So my Penn dream, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but my Penn dream was to be the first female chair of the Federal Reserve. Like That was my dream. And I get out of Penn, or I start applying for jobs my senior year, and I interviewed at the Fed, and I got the job. Not as the chair, as a junior <laughs> lowlife, you know, research associate, paying I think something like twenty four thousand dollars, maybe. Yeah. And then I also interviewed for a couple of these quote Wall Street jobs. So I interviewed for this one at Cantor Fitzgerald, which I don't know if you've heard, but it was you know the. Right, hundred fifth floor World Trade Center. So one of the main companies that lost their right. entire staff in nine eleven. I interviewed with Cantor Fitzgerald, and I will never forget that day going to their offices. And I was there on a Friday on the trading floor, and the unemployment number comes out, and all the traders are screaming, and the energy in the room is ridiculous. Yeah the contrast between that and the cubicle at the fed really quiet doing research and then the pay was something like triple what the offer was at the fed and here i am right the poor kid who went to penn had all these loans right and it was like i got to go the wall street route so anyway so i end up in new york 105th floor world trade center and i was actually in the first bombing in 1994, or of 94, when they drove the truck into the right. basement. I was in that, walked down 105 flights, two and a half hours, crazy, memorable experience, needless to say.
1: Yeah, needless to say. And when did you yeah. leave Cantor Fitzgerald?
2: So for personal reasons, I was dating my college boyfriend and he was down in Atlanta or in the Georgia area. I left about a year and a half, two years later, and I moved to Atlanta. And so I think the progression for me was, I don't know, I guess what you would call like somewhat intellectual at Penn. I loved economics research and really getting into the details of things. And then I ended up on a Wall Street trading desk where Mm -hmm. you know the ticker. You're trading stocks and you know the four, three, four digit ticker, and that's it, It's unlikely you even know the name of the company, let alone what they do, who runs it, anything like that. Right. And pretty quickly on, like once the allure of the excitement of that job, once I sort of got over that, pretty quickly on, I just had this itching, like this is, I need to know more, like this is so Mm -hmm. high level and, you know, the whole element of just greed and everything like that. I, I wasn't a huge fan of. So I moved to Atlanta to go, I would say one level up. So trading in New York City. And then it, in Atlanta, I took an institutional sales job. So my clients were the mutual funds in Boston, basically, like right. we we service Boston. And so in the institutional sales job, okay, now you knew the ticker and the company name. And you knew a little bit of information that the research analysts were doing on the companies. And you were conveying that information to the analysts and portfolio managers at the mutual fund firms in Boston. And so in that institutional sales job, I thought, okay, this is better. Now I know the company name and I know a little bit about what they're doing. But wow, these people I'm talking to, like, they're really going deep. They're learning everything about the company. So I quickly realized as an institutional salesperson that in order to get to that next level, to become an analyst or a portfolio manager for a mutual fund firm, I needed to go back to school. I needed to get an MBA. So I ended up applying to MBA programs and left Atlanta about another year and a half later. So I spent three years working between undergrad and then I ended up going to Duke, the Fuqua right. School of Business, to get my MBA. And I was, I was laser focused. Like I went to I went to business school so that I could get a job. And I had it in my mind right away. I was like, I want a job at Fidelity. At the time, you know, they were undoubtedly like the best mutual fund firm in the business. And I liked Boston. Um, my coach in high school had run the Boston Marathon. We all went and watched them. And I remember at the time thinking, I want to go to Boston someday. I was done with the New York City thing. And Atlanta was nice, but it just, I didn't feel like there was kind of enough going on for the stage of career I was at. So I got you know, a part-time job in business school as an analyst for a small money management firm in the Durham area, Durham, Mm -hmm. North Carolina. And then I just started probably three, four months in a business school calling Fidelity, calling anyone and everyone who would pick up the phone. And, you know, this is the old days, right? That's all you did was call. You you went to the library, you got these books, you got people's phone numbers. And I just called everyone who worked there. I was like, I want to work for you guys. You know, will you give me a chance? Can I come in for an interview? And I think finally I drove the recruiter bananas enough because Fidelity did not recruit at Duke. So I, she was like, well, just let me know if you're ever in the Boston area. So every week I would call and be like, I'm going to be in Boston next week. Which of course I had no plans to be in Boston. Right. Finally, she said, fine, you know, yeah. come on and we'll meet with you. And you know, it worked out. I got a job.
1: Yeah. you, worked very hard to get yourself in the door at Fidelity. Once you were there, how did you find it? Was it what you expected it would be? Was it, you know, similar or different?
2: Yeah, I loved it. Um, I, I did. I absolutely loved it. I was a summer intern and then my second year of business school, they offered me the full-time job and they gave me the opportunity to work part-time, my second year of business school flew every week I would fly from North Carolina to Boston Thursday night work Friday in the Boston office and fly back Friday night like that's mm. how much I liked it right from the get-go Wow and I think the thing that was fun for me, was, you know, to my point about kind of the progression from being a trader to a salesperson, like now I was indeed going deep. And it's a combination. The job is a combination of being, you know, sort of good with people because you're trying to form relationships with company management teams and get them to talk to you and ask them questions. So it had that investigative journalism element. Yeah, to the job that, you know, was maybe my like true, true passion from childhood. And it was ever changing. So if you did well, you I was an analyst on probably six different sectors during my tenure there. If you did well, you rotated from one sector to the next every year and a half. And so I rotated through a number of sectors as an analyst from you know healthcare to financials to industrial companies, and then became a portfolio manager and then moved into management overseeing analysts. So it was a great, great 10 and a half, 11 year run that I had. And my last couple of years at Fidelity, I had four kids in four years and life just got really full and, you know, ended up making the pretty hard decision to step away. We'd gone through a lot in having our kids infertility, and IVF and miscarriages and all that stuff. And it had been just a really rough kind of four years. And, uh, You know, now there I was all of a sudden. So I I ended up quitting when I was pregnant with my fourth. And our fourth child wasn't planned, despite the fact that our first three children were, you know, medical miracles that we worked really hard to get. And there was something about this unplanned natural pregnancy that felt to me like someone's telling you something like it's... Time to take a break and step away and kind of circled back to my father and the sacrifice he made for a while to be there for me. And I don't know, I it, 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 like all that kind of came together in not, not a day per se, but yeah. in, in a moment, in all the thoughts and, and the conflicting feelings I was feeling. And yeah, I left and became a stay-at-home mom for a while.
1: But then you got busy. I know you got busy in nonprofit work. And that's around when the time when you wrote your book as well, right?
2: Yeah. So I left and, you know, things were really busy at home. I mean, literally four kids in four years. So I had Mm. a lot of little ones, but we had some help. And, you know, I left a little bit of time for myself, I guess. And it was hard. It was... Hard. I mean, I only ultimately ended up, I think, staying home full time for two and a half years. I missed career. I missed that sense of identity. Uh, But right away, it was what I felt was right and what I needed to do. But I needed a challenge. I needed something that had kind of tangible goals and even if self-created, like deadlines associated with them. I needed emails that I needed to respond to and reasons to dress up and go to a meeting on occasion. So I found all of that through writing the book and joining some nonprofit boards. And they were linked in that the audience... Of my book wasn't deliberate per se, but I would say the target audience was single women who were raising children in a very poor or homeless type environment and inspiring in them that things might be tough and you might not be able to buy your kid designer jeans or whatever it is. But if you love your child and teach them that they can do whatever they can do, it's okay. And that was the message from my book. And so partly because of that, I got involved in organizations, a couple of organizations that were centered around homelessness or helping single moms or families or children in need in this area. So it was really fulfilling for a while. I mean, certainly writing a book was a decent undertaking. I took a class at Grub Street in Boston, which was taught by a fantastic individual who ended up being my editor and really encouraged me and and helped me sort of take it from start to finish. And then through my nonprofit work, I got asked a number of times to be the keynote speaker at events and tell my story that was part of the book and, you know, gotten more involved in those causes.
1: I mean, given what you said about earlier, not really sharing the early days of your childhood, I mean, the book was kind of a coming out for you.
2: It was. And I think in writing it, there was a lot of, it was, it was therapeutic Mm. and my daughter's a writer and she writes, she struggles with um, anxiety issues and she writes poems and her whole heart comes out on that paper. And I think writing, I mean, they say, right, if you're struggling, journal. Journaling is a great thing to do. I mean, even if you're just trying to figure out things in life, right? Like your thoughts down on a piece of paper. There's a lot of self-learning and value that comes from that. And yes. So for me, the book was, it was my therapy. It was my project. It was my created the deadlines and, and goals that I needed having stepped away from my career, but it was also just very therapeutic and understanding myself and, you know, the challenges I had gone through as a child. And then the challenges I was kind of going through at the time in terms of kind of stepping off
1: that career track to take care of my kids. So from a timing perspective, you were out of the workforce formally speaking, while you were doing some of the nonprofit board work, raising your kids. When you went back, you started a yoga studio and you also, I know, went back into the money management business. I guess, talk about the decision to do both of those things.
2: So I was pretty fulfilled for a while. The book got done. I did some speaking. Um, You know, people read it, gave me feedback, like that all felt good for a while. And then I kind of went through a period where, okay, I did it. That's done. Now what? And raising kids as arguably the most amazing thing I've done in t- my entire life. You know, I now have four teenagers, but when they're little, for someone who I think is used to that corporate world where you're constantly getting feedback. Fun things you do, whether it be your reviews or, hey, good job, or, you know, meet this deadline, parenting, the days are long, but the years are short, or whatever some of these trite sayings are. But right. that sense of feedback isn't there to the same degree, right? You don't know that the decisions you're making and the things you're doing, whether they're ultimately going to translate into... Kids who are happy, become independent, are smart, do well in school. You don't know. You're just doing what you're doing, raising a four year old. So I decided that I wanted to try to get back into the money management business. So, but it was 2009 and, you know,
1: deep in the crisis,
2: deep in the financial crisis, um, Fidelity was laying off people, everybody was laying. People, It was not a good time to think about wanting to go back into the business. And it was interesting because at the time, so one of my jobs at Fidelity was as an analyst covering the investment banks and other large financial institutions. And I was doing the analytical work on these companies when they were just clearly going down a bad path. And it was obvious. I don't want to say obvious because everyone missed this, right? But they're looking back, there were so many warning signs that the big banks were stepping out on that risk curve, you know, just, just taking on way too much risk. And I remember being home in this, you know, Lehman goes bankrupt and Bear Stearns goes bankrupt. And those were companies I knew really well. And I remember feeling, oh my gosh, I'm missing out. On one of the greatest learning experiences that anyone could ever have working in this industry, and it was ironically one of the things that made me want to go back. Because as hard as things like that are in the stock market, they're also just once in a lifetime learning opportunities. Yeah. So I ended up getting a job at a relatively small institutional money manager to manage the healthcare portion of their assets. And so my longest stint and the stint I loved most at Fidelity was as a healthcare analyst. Mm. So this opportunity came up. It was fantastic. I would focus on healthcare, an area that I thought was really interesting. So I started um, at this company called Copper Rock Capital in 2009 or 10. and fast forward they ended up going bankrupt four years later everything was great for a year and then it incrementally became not great clients Mm. started leaving and the writing increasingly became on the wall that this firm might not make it yeah and but i was a bit stuck it was a small firm i was partner the client base was pretty concentrated And I didn't want to be that person who Mm. laughed and, you know, was kind of the just kind of created the domino effect. Yeah. So I'm in Lexington. I had been a big runner in college and ran a lot after college competitively. And after having my fourth child, I couldn't go back to running how I used to, you know, used to a couple marathons a year, all that. And saw, a lot of people, physical therapists and chiropractors and masseuses and orthopedic surgeons, and all of that. And then I started doing yoga and I loved it and it worked and my body was feeling better. And I'm in this job where things aren't going very well. I suddenly become addicted to yoga and yeah. the town laws in Lexington change such that for the first time ever, Businesses that offer group fitness are allowed to open in town center. Right. And so previously, you know, you had Boston Sports Club on the edge of town, but there was nothing in town center. Right. And I'm going to this yoga studio and it's packed every single time. So I start putting together a spreadsheet and I'm like, okay, I called. The landlord of this building, I called the electric company and I put together like what I think are their cost structure. And I'm like, all right, I'm paying $15 a class and there's like 40 people on average in each class. So it wasn't too hard to sort of put together an expected income statement for the yoga studio I was going. And I'm like, I can do this business in Lexington. Like, why don't I build this in Lexington? It became for me almost sort of similar to that time when I left Fidelity in the first place and and decided to write a book. It became for me my challenge while I yeah. felt stuck in a finance job that had a limited lifespan.
1: Yeah.
2: And it was interesting because I spent, you know, maybe a year looking at real estate, meeting with the various town people that you have to meet with to get permitting and things of that nature. And I was due to sign the lease, say on a Wednesday and on, and I was leaving for France right after I was due to sign the lease on Tuesday night, the night before this, someone calls me and they said, that's weird. I thought you told me you were going to open a yoga studio, but I just heard a yoga studio is opening up Mm. different location right in town. And I was like, oh, you know, as, it must be me you're talking about. It can't be someone yeah. else. But I paused and the next morning I called around and it turned out there was another person looking to do the exact same thing in Lexington that I was. So I find out who this person is and I call her and I said, hey, I just found out you're looking to do the exact same thing I am. And... We're either both going to do this independently, and there's no way the town is going to support two yoga studios, or we can join forces. And so we agreed to meet, we hit it off, and we became partners. Mm -hmm. And I took the space she had just signed on, let go of the other space I was looking at, which she had the better location. And 10 years later, and now three studios, it's been a great lasting partnership.
1: Yeah. That's great. I mean, considering that you didn't even know each other beforehand, that it's worked out as well as it has. That's rare. Right, right, exactly. How did the two of you complement each other?
2: You know, I brought the financial side to the equation. Not that, you know, analyzing stocks is is necessarily the same as bookkeeping for a small business. Right. And she had an operations background. So those were the two main compliments. And then we kind of figured out marketing. And the reality of a small business is, you know, you, you do everything. I have yep. many memories of cleaning dirty toilets and the roof caving in and running to the studio in the middle of the night because there's a big we I,
1: I remember and- when that happened.
2: <laughs> so... I learned, I mean, I've learned a lot. It's night and day from a large organization or even a small organization where, you know, that you call somebody when your computer doesn't work. Right. In a small business, you just, you have to do everything yourself. There's nobody to call. There's you. But at the same time, you know, there aren't 15 meetings to come to a decision on anything. You talk it out, you send a couple emails between each other and you say, okay, let's give it a try. Let's do this. Let's do that. And I I don't know. I mean, I often ask people when I interview people, you know, what do you prefer? Big company, small company, medium-sized company. And I actually think that it depends. And depending on the situation, it really depends on who you work most directly with. Yeah, friend of mine, I'll never forget, got her PhD in organizational behavior. And her dissertation on was on what are the primary factors that make people love their job? And the number one factor was the people you work with. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do stuff you're not interested in, but if you like the people you're working with, everything else will be fine. And I think for me, that that has proven true very much so. With yeah. the yoga studio, I love. I love my partner. We have a third partner as well, and you know we trust each other. We're friends for life,
1: and that that goes a long, long way in terms of what you choose to do. You eventually went again back into money management. I know you were at Putnam until just recently, so you've also made a decision to leave that world again.
2: Now, yeah, you, yeah, you're
1: kind of at another crossroads.
2: I am, which feels in some ways frustrating, but also enlightening. And in the moment you always do what you think is right and what you need to do. And if I've learned anything all these years, it's that there isn't one right path and life gets in the way and you have to work around that. And so I got an opportunity to join Putnam, someone I had worked with for quite a long time at Fidelity, um, was building out their sustainable investing practice, right? Which is a fantastic, relatively new area of investing that you know has gained a lot of traction and has really influenced, I think, a lot of what we're seeing in terms of how corporate corporations are organizing themselves. And I mean, it's so interesting to see with teenage kids Yeah, and, you know, my son will only buy sustainable products now. And he, he looks, it doesn't matter what he's buying, a new t-shirt or anything, but he cares about that stuff. And yeah. this young generation cares about that stuff. And, and I would argue that a lot of this came from the investment community the investment community, pushing companies to care about things other than just short-term profits. And, you know, now government's gotten involved and it's all become sort of a circular, fulfilling element in the economy. And so it was great. But as I mentioned a little while ago, my oldest daughter has anxiety issues and I have So I have two juniors, freshmen in high school and an eighth grader. And my two juniors, the one is my daughter with anxiety issues. Um, You know, they're starting the college search process and there's a lot going on right now. Right. And I, I needed to step away. Yeah. So I've chosen to step away. I still, you know, I'm, I'm still actively involved in the yoga studio and I've, Put most of my time into one nonprofit that I'm a part of, which ironically was founded by one of my best friends who's recently retired from Fidelity. Hope and Comfort distributes toiletry hygiene items to those in need in Massachusetts. So I basically split my time between both of those. Will I go back to the investment business at some point? You know, I don't know. How much longer will I work for? I think a lot about my own individual passions and areas of interest, and I'm very passionate about giving back and helping people who need help in Massachusetts. Um, Obviously, that's my nonprofit area, and I'm very passionate about wellness and fitness. In addition to the yoga studio, I have done two Ironmans in the last couple of years I do a decent amount of endurance fitness events. I'm actually training right now for a five day climb the major peaks of the Tour de France in July. So, this kind of a bucket list when I left Putnam, and there's so much going on. And I was like, I need something. I need something, right? You always need something. And that's kind of one of my big goals right now to do that. So, I'll do that. I'll help my kids get their college applications in. Hopefully they can both get in early decision and we'll have those done and in by November first. And then they'll know, you know, shortly thereafter. And then I'll figure it out. I think that's kind of my plan right now. But I know there's something else. I just don't know what it is. And I want to be really careful and smart and thoughtful. About what that is, and if there's a way to combine some of my personal passions with work in a more specific way. I mean, I did that a bit with the yoga studio. Then I'm all in.
1: Yeah, when you get those chances to combine your profession and the passion, it's a it's a really nice thing. You know, I know you listened to the podcast interview with Andrew Messick from yes. Iron Man, and he got to do that. You know, and right. You know it took his wife telling him he needed to go take that first job at the MBA
2: exactly know, to sort of
1: live out his, live out the sports management world and off he went from there,
2: right. So, yeah, I listened to that podcast. It was very inspirational to me. I love that You said you're an endurance athlete yourself. I love that world.
1: yeah, um, I have a lot of respect for people in that world. and you know it you know it uh, definitely his story resonates for me,
2: yeah. And I think there's a special mindset of people who like pushing it to the limit athletically and in a lot of cases I myself included there's something there's something from your childhood there's something where I don't know there's like an inner drive that got created at some point that you're you're sort of okay with pain and enjoy it and so I don't know I don't know what's I don't know what's next as you said, I'm definitely at a transition point, but I'm trying to, our good mutual friend said to me, just don't do anything for six months. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to not do anything new for six months.
1: Yeah. You know, given that that your attention right now is in part on your two juniors and getting them through the college application process, not taking on too much in the next six months is probably good advice.
2: Yeah, easier said than done. But I easier said than on.
1: done. Yeah. Well, I, I I sense certainly from you that there is a very strong inner drive that's fueled you, you know, all the way through. I mean, going back to, you know, your childhood, going back to the however many times you called fidelity, trying to get yourself in the door there. And right. things kind of went from there. What advice would you offer to people who are contemplating how to best manage their careers?
2: I think it's the what I was just saying in terms of there is no one right path. And when I originally left Fidelity and stepped away from what at the time was, there was a clear and obvious path and, and that I was on. I was so scared. I was so scared. I'll never get back in. No one will hire me again. And you know what? That's not true. Smart people... Who have a lot to offer and are hard workers and are personable or whatever it is. I mean, different careers demand different things. There will always be opportunities. And I think what's so hard and hard for me right now is on a given day, it might not be clear or obvious at all right. what those opportunities are going to be. There's no one path, there's no right way. There's no roadmap to how you're supposed to do this. Your career and your life are, you know, at the end of the day, a series of short-term decisions that lead to, you know, that, that resume that you put together and it takes a degree of self-confidence and just hanging on to hope that if you're looking to make a transition that might, might not be on the first try, might not be on the second try, but you will get there Yeah, where you can feel fulfilled. And I mean, one of my favorites words is passion. Yeah, If you can do something you're passionate about, it's just fun. And that's where I'm, that's where I will
1: be. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, I am to a degree, but that's where I will be. And I, I'm just
1: going to be confident in that. Yeah. And it takes, it takes patience. It takes faith. At times, it takes hustle, right? Yep, exactly. Perseverance. You know, For everybody, it's different, right? As you say, there's no one path. And even these moments of career transition are unique for different people. So you just have to trust that you'll figure your way through it. Exactly. All right. Well, on that note, why don't we wrap up? I know you have to go, but this is a great conversation. It was nice getting to know you. You too. I appreciate your time. So I'll be in touch about getting this out and have a good rest of your day, Yolanda.
0: Thank you so much. Have a good one. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.